As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
She looks fragile, but she's very strong. And she was screaming at the top of her lungs, I want to kill myself. And he was holding back the knife. I rang her doctor that we totally respect, who's been her doctor since she was 15, and said, what should we do, Dr. Deb? I said, can you hear her screaming? She said, you'll just have to call the police. And I said, I don't want to call the police. They shoot mentally ill people. She wanted him to, to buy her cigarettes. He had been dishing out to her a lot of money at this stage, and he refused. He said he'd get him the next day, but I'm not doing it now at 10 o'clock at night. According to the reports, she asked to, to see the money in the wallet. He showed her the money, and according to the court reports, she snatched the money and went into a rage. And the first thing that she did apparently was punch him so that he fell down unconscious. Melbourne woman murders man for cigarettes. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. There's thousands and thousands of families all over Australia going through the exact same thing we did failed by the system, abandoned, and there's no support for them, and they're desperate. These are the real voices of Australian true crime. Support us at patreon.com forward slash pod, and leave us a review wherever you download your podcasts. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Spike has gotten in the car, got Andrew to call the police and I think the ambulance as well, driven back round to the house to get Anne and he said, get in. She said, what's happened? Have you found her? And he said, yep, I just don't know if it's foul play or not. That's Alice Mitchell, who contacted us through social media, offering to come in and tell us about the unsolved murder of Nina Nicholson in Clunes in 1991. Alice is also behind the podcast Clunes Cluedo, and you may have noticed an episode of that podcast uploaded to our stream this week as well. Talking about Nina Nicholson's story is more than a hobby for Alice. She's single-handedly running a campaign using any means she can think of to bring attention to it, and to lobby the Victorian coroner for a second inquest. Although they never met, there is a family connection between Alice and Nina. But the more we got to know Alice, the more I got the feeling that this wasn't just a fight for her own relative or an ache to solve a curious mystery. I got the impression that Alice is a young woman who is fed up with Australia's shameful violence statistics and has decided not to stand by and do nothing. Just after Easter, I happened upon a bunch of paperwork, a bunch of documents, some psychic notes that my dad had gone to get some answers from. What's your dad's connection to this case? So this is my dad's cousin, first cousin. So Nina's my second cousin. And so, yeah, direct family connection. So have you worked in crime before? 
No. My career, a few years is as a private investigator, so civil investigation, so I'm a little nosy. Okay. Helpful in this case, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you know about this family history, though? Yeah. Yeah. It it wasn't often spoken about, and I think that could be because people had this drought of mystery over it and perhaps didn't want to speak out of line. But, yeah, I've always known about it, but it's not until very recently that something just triggered this desperate need to get answers. We've heard that a bit, though, haven't we, in families that Mm. relatives of murdered people don't talk about it much. For some yeah. reason, I'm a talker. Taken over the reins, and a lot of the the extensions and younger cousins weren't aware of Nina's case, and so I'm feeling quite proud to actually bring it to light and not let people forget about her. Because it appears periodically in the papers Nina's yep. case, but she does seem to have been a bit of a forgotten victim. Who's still alive in Nina's family? Are her parents alive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, her parents are. They're around 74 and 80, so they're getting on. She's got an, a younger brother as well. Um, she never had children. Um, she was robbed of that. So she was so young too, 22 when 22. she was murdered. Married, you know, a nurse, just a really quiet, quiet girl. Yeah, and it almost feels like she's my little cousin because I've got a good decade on her now, you know, out, outliving what she got to experience in life. And although she's old enough to, technically to have been my mum, you know, I do feel this strange kindred connection to get justice. Yeah, she's like your little cousin now. How long ago did we lose Nina? 20, 28 years. It was a September evening, September 10 in 91 uh, in Clunes, um, which is out near Ballarat. It's a little gold mining town. Uh, she was doing night shift at the hospital. She's a paediatric nurse in the children's ward at Ballarat St John of God Hospital. She had gone to her parents' place to watch telly beforehand and then she'd nicked home to get changed into her nursing uniform and head off. I think her shift started at 9.30. Was she in... Did she live... So she didn't live with her parents? No. Around the corner you could walk. It's maybe a 500 metre distance. Very localised. Who did she live with? Her husband. Oh, okay. So she's married. Yep. So okay. she's she's married, got married in 88, so 18, 19 she was when she got married. Very young. I think that was always the plan, mm-hmm. always the goal. Uh, her husband was away at the time, though. He's a trucker. So he was interstate in South Australia at that particular point in time. Mm. Her parents thought everything was normal till about 9.40, maybe 10. She hadn't turned up for work. Got a call from the hospital and her mum actually told me she thought that it was Nina calling up to ask her to record Chances, I think, the television show. Oh, I'm yeah, not I old enough to remember. but I remember that, uh, Apparently yeah. she loved that. She was expecting to call up to say, can you record it? Um, but it was actually the hospital saying she hadn't turned up and she was apparently very punctual usually. The road and the weather that night was really wet. And so they were a bit concerned she might have run off the road. And so her dad and brother, Andrew, who's 17 at the time, um, they jumped in the car to travel that route from Clunes to Ballarat, which is about half an hour. But they've gone past her house first and they've seen that her car is still in the driveway. So Spike, her dad, has pulled into the driveway. And from what he's told me, he recalls sort of the headlights grazing over the front porch uh, and Nina's laying there oh, face down in her uniform. They've jumped out, they've gone, unlocked the, the the house with the spare key, they've gone inside, turned the front light on because the front light wasn't on at that point. One of those conversations I've had with Nina's mum is that, you know, often they just leave it off to save power, what's the point in having it on? And, yeah, they got the lights on, she's face down, bleeding, unresponsive. Spike has gotten in the car, 
got Andrew to call the police and I think the ambulance as well, just the general emergency services, driven back round to the house to get Anne. And he said, get in. She said, what's happened? Have you found her? And he said, yep, I just don't know if it's foul play or not. So they've gone around there and that's when sort of the chaos has begun for them. Anne told me that she recalls seeing someone sort of standing in the shadows, uh, a man um, who she didn't recognise at that time, but she thought someone was sort of watching and observing what was happening. The local policeman has turned up and pretty much in that same instance, the next door neighbour, Paul, has popped his head over the fence. And she thought she saw somebody watching. But you're saying also that the neighbour has popped his head over the fence. So it's it's a small town, but neighbours are close. So... I mean, it's hard to imagine that you could think you saw a man observing and not be screaming your head off, but I guess it could have been a neighbour. You know, it's that that idea. Yeah, exactly. And in a small town like that, and it's a Tuesday night, so it's not like people having parties and lots of different people coming through. And you're completely freaking out because your daughter's lying face down yeah. bleeding. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, so she said she'd, she'd gotten round to the house and run to her and mm. in that moment where she sort of embraced her and checking her out, trying to revive her, she said she was loosely aware there was a bloke over to her left. Now there's a clearing to the left if you're facing the road. Um, one of those, you know, loosely rural. You've, you've got streets, you've got mm. houses, but they're they're sort of few and far between. There's paddock. Okay, mm. so I guess yeah. Okay, you're aware of so you, and in your awareness, is that a neighbour? Is that spike? Is that, I don't know. Yeah. But I'm just working. It's all the panic of on the my daughter. Moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then he, he was just sort of observing, and then after the police had arrived and everyone else tried to to revive her. She didn't see him again. And that's something that's played on her mind, trying to remember, you know, exactly what his face looked like. Mm. So the frustration of that and the anger at yourself, thinking, why didn't I look up and see who that was? Yeah, and the way that the years Mm. would take over your memory and manipulate it a little bit as well. In some of the reports I'd read, Nina had always been a little bit nervous when her husband was away, so that's why she was over at her mum and dad's watching TV. But there'd been some stuff happened in the weeks or months previous. Yes. So what what was that about? So about one year prior to her being killed, she had called her parents at about midnight, they recall, um, screaming, crying, hysterical, saying someone's outside. So she thought someone was either peeping Tom or an intruder trying to get into the house. So Spike came around, checked the place out, coast was clear. So she jumped in the car and went and stayed at their place. So from there on in for that following year, any time her husband was out of town doing those multiple night truck runs, she would stay the night at her parents if she wasn't on night shift, which that particular night she was on night shift. So she just popped home to get changed. She was going to be at hospital till daylight anyway. There doesn't seem to be as many articles about her murder as others. Is that because of the fact that there were? there's just never been that many leads? In the case, yeah. what do you put it down to? <laughs> I suppose there's a lot of media that you'll see about beauty queens that get murdered or mums that get murdered. And I feel like, with all due respect to Nina, she isn't one of those people that maybe the media finds interesting enough perhaps to give more of a platform to. She's just a regular girl, didn't leave many people behind, you know, and, and that's partially why I felt really, really motivated to give her that platform and start stirring the pot a lot more because when I sort of happened upon these newspaper clippings, that it kind of was an analogy of how I felt her case was being treated, kind of left at the bottom of the pile or the, the too hard basket. And that's when I started prying and going, okay, well, these news articles that... Like you said, they anniversarise and they don't 
really publish them unless it is an anniversary of something. There's not really much to report on. It's the repeat of the same old information. And I thought there's got to be something more. And that's when started door knocking and calling people and Facebooking people. You've done a lot. And really trying to scope out, okay, so the media reports one thing and they've got an obligation to report certain things and not other things as well. And I really wanted to understand, I mean, I'm not a police police person, so I can't, or, or in the justice system in any capacity, but so I can't control or send people to trial, arrest people interview people in that legal capacity but I certainly can go around and find that information for at least my own deep understanding and to ensure that maybe other members of the family got an understanding of of what happened. Is it the case that the other members of the family or or that really the entire family apart from you are very shy people? Yeah, definitely. They're, they're a country <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. Um, because so- that's the sense I'm getting. Even, you know, I've just pulled up an article here and I'm looking at Anne and Spike, Nina's parents and, and Nina, and the quotes in the article are really short and sharp and I'm getting a sense of really quiet, introverted, shy country people. And I think that has an effect as well on the coverage of cases. If there's not an extrovert in the mix who will grab the media by the throat, those are the cases that fall off the front pages really quickly, aren't they? Yeah. And, and thank it, I'm growing up now, so yeah. <laughs> that's what, and that's it what predates, I'm here to do. It predates social media as well. Tell us some of the stuff that you've done to bring Nina's case to more public awareness. Yeah, sure. It definitely starts with social media. I was really, really surprised and I would have been her birthday in September. I thought I've got to start sharing something. No one's sharing anything. No one's talking about it. Let's talk about it. The least we can do is talk about it. So I I did up a little picture on Facebook and I shared it on a public post just saying this is Nina. Would have been her, you know, 51st birthday this week. Someone's still out there. No one's been convicted for her murder. And it spread like wildfire and they... Within sort of 24, 48 hours, it had over 2,000 shares. People coming to me that had gone to school with Nina, community members, people that worked with her, people that were children and treated by her in hospital when she was a nurse, and all these people that had been impacted. And what I think my favourite part that came out of that was the anger and shock that no conviction had ever occurred in relation to her murder and a lot of people I think must have assumed that because no one's talking about it, oh that must be closed and done yeah but no yeah. It, was, it was quite the opposite and I really really liked the outcry that the community had saying this isn't okay something has to be no. done she died on the porch didn't she yeah she didn't make it off the porch That's she was right. de- yeah she was declared dead on the porch she would have been and recalls that she was still um she couldn't find a pulse when she got there Mm. she may have been there you know up to an hour hour and a half um she was already in a uniform so she must have got home about eight o'clock gotten changed and come back out before she was attacked and and recalls when she held her that nina let out a sigh although there was no medical professional there to declare that that's you know etched into Anne's memory that that Nina died in her arms. Oh, my God, that's really... Yeah. Given the tiny population of clones, it's fair to assume that the perpetrator is a member of the community or was a member of the community at the time. It would be unlikely that a stranger happened to be passing by at nine o'clock 
On a Tuesday. On a Tuesday night. <laughs> exactly. And happened upon Nina as she was walking out the door to go to work. So it is frustrating that no conviction has ever been recorded for this crime. And she was never robbed. She wasn't sexually assaulted. Yeah. She was just bludgeoned to death and left there. So what of the investigation? What what do Anne and Spike have to say about that when you talk to them about that? What are their feelings about it? Anne, or anybody else else for that matter? Sure, I can give you my opinion. I can give yeah, the other people's. Do. Spike and Anne speak very, very highly of the police work that has been done and I know a lot of behind-the-scenes work and things that can't be publicised. The Homicide Squad from Melbourne would have worked on this case, Correct. right? But I think in those days there would not have been many homicide detectives in Victoria maybe six or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you can pretty much, if, if you look up homicides of that that sort of late 80s, mm. even early 80s through to the mid-90s, it's pretty much the same names that come up. Yes. I think it was um, Detective Paul Newman who was first running mm-hmm. the case. Mm-hmm. There was yes. only a handful of detectives for the entire state. Yeah. Ron would have been one of them. Ron worked on it at one point. Yeah. And there's no cold case division by that stage, so they're also working on older cases. They're pretty stretched. Yeah. They are, and, yeah, that's definitely a fair statement. So we, there's a lot of high expectations put on them too mm. um, by all of the individuals affected. I do know that there was a lead followed for quite some time that is now deemed totally and utterly incorrect, um, a person of interest who even I looked into and I've got a huge file here of this person's criminal record and personal life and everything about them and, and thought, we must be onto something. Why hasn't this guy been arrested? And then in speaking with Cold Case, they concluded to me that, no, he, he's definitely not a person of interest anymore. Ugh. But from journalists at the time that I've spoken to that were first on the scene, this name was thrown around from day dot and my feeling is possibly that that distracted perhaps from, or, you know, got the blinkers on from the start perhaps a little bit. And this this person definitely has the background where he fits the bill, like... It would make sense for it to be this kind of guy, but I think a lot of energy was spent on the wrong person and I think they definitely could have been looking a lot closer to home. And that happens, doesn't it, in some cases. I'm thinking of the Jane Thurgood Dove case where Mm. attention was diverted very early on to, you know, a police officer that had a friendship with her or quite Mm. interested in her and and her parents certainly feel like the police put too much energy into that. Well, he had an obsession with her. I know, which makes sense. You know, sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. I mean, it's hard to understand. It's hard to believe sometimes that the most obvious looking suspect is not the one. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to believe that it's not the case. And detectives are human beings. Are you able to share anything about that uh, suspect? He's not a suspect now, but what about him made police think it could be him? So very checkered criminal past, multiple imprisonment terms. Uh, I've got some documents on him uh, in relation to the murder of another woman. Uh. He had very, very recently gotten out of prison um, prior to Nina's death and I suppose all signs pointed um, to him. The timeline, the area, the motive... It all made sense. So I can definitely see why the detective, detectives would have, you know, been on that trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> so what mm. do you think now are your chances? And when you say that you feel as though they should have been looking closer to home, is there a person of interest now? Yes. And 
the investigation now is with Cold Case. Yes, it is. So you have a detective now that you're working with? There's a couple of detectives I've spoken to who've who've contacted me and I've contacted them and sent them all the little bits and bobs. I've been told by numerous people reaching out to me and me contacting people directly as well. So I think they understand I've got a pretty good scope of what's gone on. But of course, I'm not going to compromise anything by no. going into it too deeply. Mm-hmm. Currently, there is definitely a person of interest and and they make no secret of that, who has been interviewed multiple times, is a local and I suppose, in my opinion, has the gift of the gab in covering their tracks and probably has a very loyal alibi sticking to their story. Ah, Mm. it's interesting, isn't it? Because we talk so often about cold cases and about the hope that after enough time has passed, relationships change. We can hope. Yeah, Nina's case is now subject to a $1 million award, is that mm-hmm. correct? That was on the 25th anniversary of her death, so I think 2016 they released that reward, which is nice. It's a nice sentiment in a way, but I also do wonder sometimes if they, they put million-dollar rewards on the cases they think aren't going to... Those rewards are designed to rattle the cages of yeah. people who may not be as loyal as they yeah, were initially. maybe someone who could take that money, start a new life away from the person they're being loyal to. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't rattle a cage. It definitely brought in a bunch of information that, that wasn't relevant. It, oh. it brought in, unfortunately, spiking and had people knocking on the door, <sighs> calling their phone. Oh, I reckon it was this guy. I've got an old second cousin who knows a bloke that was a you know a bad guy. It was probably him. So people coming up. It certainly stimulated a lot of uh, theories <laughs> to come forward. Uh, nothing that was solid enough to make a conviction. Mm. And I don't think they've had much conclusive new information since probably around 2006, the last time the person of interest was interviewed. And there was an inquest, wasn't there? In 1993. And what what was the conclusion of that? Pretty much that she died of multiple head and upper body injuries and that it was most likely at the hands of somebody else. I could have done that. Persons of interest? I haven't seen the documents. I would love to, but I've only seen the certificate that sort of came of it, the, the main declaration rather than interviews or the whole proceedings. Based on what I now know through speaking to the police, through speaking to Nina's parents and locals and other people that have encountered things in Clunes, I firmly believe that a second coronial inquest would see more detailed information, new information come forward that I guess in my opinion, again, I'm not in the justice system, but I can't see how it wouldn't bring forward a trial. I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, the coroner's there to declare this is most likely what happened. And I think the new information that has come to light since that first coronial, I think would turn the first one on its head and make for a much clearer path and and potential for trial. But I'm not inside the the cold case unit. I'm not aware of all those finer details and bits of red tape that might be preventing that happen. But that is one thing that I'm, you know, writing letters for and Try yeah, get people are. on board. I feel like that is, and and Ron Idles told me that you can apply for a, you know, a second coronial uh, inquest or investigation, and that's sort of where my attention is going to be taken next. The worst they can do is say no. Yeah, you have. I know you can't talk about it, but you have discovered some pretty interesting stuff through your you know, people contacting you and your investigations. God, yeah. Without being specific, what, what's some of the stuff that surprised you most when you've been digging around? Uh, the fact that Nina probably isn't a one-off oh. scenario. Um, wow. And I'm not saying anyone else has been murdered as such, but I believe that this person of interest definitely is a risk to the community. Still. Yeah. There, there's some folks I've spoken to and, you know, I'm going to keep their 
details in confidence, as as I promised, but there's certainly Nina's not the only person who has fallen victim in some capacity. She's definitely the most major. Unfortunately, none of it's ever resulted in conviction, but when you're getting multiple sources of information from different places who aren't known to each other, come to you and disclose it. With that said, you are definitely rattling some cages. I've got newspaper articles here, your photograph, (laughs) you're working on a podcast of your own Mm -hmm. about Nina's story. Mm -hmm. What's some, tell us about the podcast because it's out there, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. it's just a little three part. It was, I suppose, I, I can't control whether the trial happens, whether a conviction occurs at any point in this story, but what I'm hoping to is at least, if nothing does come of it, that for those future generations there is a bit of a legacy left for people to know who she was and what happened and maybe in future look back at it and go, you know, there was something wrong with this system here and this should have happened. The podcast would take you less than an hour to listen to the whole thing. It's just done in my back room and it's I just described chronologically what happened that night that she passed. Uh, there's an episode where I just discuss who she was as a person, recounts from her friends and family, just to get more about her out there. I mean, who she was isn't her murder. And oh, obviously that's, there's a lot of focus in the media when that so happens. true, right? It's, it's so true. They just become a headline yeah. that oh, Ballarat yeah. cold case, along with all the other women in that area whose murderers have never been convicted. And then there's an episode that I've kind of delved into the news articles and public knowledge things just to keep it all compiled in one little listen Time on your way to work it type of well. thing. Yeah. It's called Clune's Cluedo. Are you intimidated by this person? If you're saying that this person is a still a threat to the community and you're rattling the cage pretty aggressively. I was less intimidated until I heard from other people who'd had tales to tell. I'm not an easily intimidated person in general, and I'd certainly go and face up to them, you know, know where they work, where they live, Mm. (laughs) all those things. Mm. Um, I haven't come face to face with them at this point in time. But yes, certainly intimidated in the fact that I guess they've still managed to retain this power. The fact that they've flown under the radar and not been able to be nailed down by the police is frustrating because I I feel like it's giving him power, giving him power that maybe he thinks he's a lot smarter than everyone. Mm, I know. That's so frustrating, isn't it? And, you know, I just want to say, we know. You haven't got away with it. You might not be behind bars, but we know you're not fooling anyone. Nina put up quite a fight. And and we know that from the way that, that she was discovered. Mm-hmm. She's, she looked like a tiny woman to me. Yeah, petite, petite little thing. I think I'm one of the, the biggest women in my family on that side. They're all <laughs> you're little? little tiny ladies. Oh. <laughs> sure, definitely shorter than me, definitely shorter than me. Um, small, petite frame. They, You know, often her friends speak about her as being just a tiny little lovely Girl. She seems so sweet, just loved her job. and Oh, she's a paediatric nurse. Yeah, I mean, oh, I know, gosh. like an angel. And one of the things I really I think about often is it seems silly but that she loved John Farnham and I think that's so quintessentially mm-hmm. of that time and so Aussie mm-hmm. and so sweet. Yeah, front you know? row at the Whispering Jack concert, you oh, know, the yeah. only time she got out of town, you know, <laughs> that, yeah, that highlight of the life, yeah. Mm. The um, Yeah, no, look, she was definitely small and she – did, by all accounts, put up a strong fight, which in terms of, you know, there's got to be DNA if if she's obvious signs of putting up a fight, there must be DNA evidence that they'd be able to use and hopefully cross-reference against certain people and um, do the test. I mean, that's the beauty of it being 
now, I mean, back then, sure, they'd take the DNA, they'd take the scrapings, but they wouldn't be able to do anything with yeah. it except maybe say that they've got the same blood type. But now things like that are going to be a lot more conclusive. And again, I think that if we could get a second coronial inquest happening. And again, that's one of the reasons why cold, cold cases are, you know, being solved uh, more and more frequently now. So let's hope it was taken and stored properly and that's all of those right. things. And I suppose the other thing is, you know, DNA might be there, but, you know, the potentially the person whose DNA it is might have the gift of the gab and be able to talk their way out of scenarios or come up with a reasonable scenario in my mind not necessarily beyond a reasonable doubt that's what they keep telling me it has to come down to i think it's beyond a reasonable joke that they haven't been able to convict Mm. how approachable have you found the cold case police they were definitely lovely to speak to the blokes that have given me a call definitely open to hearing any new information that i've got Naturally, I understand they can't give me information. At the end of the day, I'm just a member of the general public who's a bit nosy. But <laughs> they have reassured me that they are still doing what they can and they're still following up on things when they can. I think they probably got the strong impression, which is probably what I wanted to get across, that I felt like they'd forgotten about it and weren't doing anything about it. And so I had to come in and do it for them. So they have definitely given me that assurance that don't worry, Alice, we are we are looking into it. We haven't forgotten about it. I said, good, because I'll call you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll come over there. Um, and so- I love that you've obviously called Ron. I'm yeah. loving that yeah. sick. We so you've gone, on. you've gone to the boss. Yeah, because yeah, I feel, you know, <laughs> what he says is gospel. Yeah, um, so do we. <laughs> and, you know, if you're going to trust anyone's word for something, it's his. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have that opinion. And it was really nice that he got back to me and gave me the information and clarity that he did. And it was very unexpected. And he was, yeah, straight up. And um, I value that very very highly and he clarified for me a lot of things that I thought I knew but wasn't sure and he just straight up was like he's very straight up he's definitely straight up and plus he started the cold case unit in Australia so he can tell you what's probably really gonna happen and what things mean and so that's brilliant such a good idea yeah good to just get that little bit of reassurance when you know he's detached now to a degree from them so he's kind of got a little bit more freedom but still got a world of knowledge. Yes. Mm. Did he look at what you'd collated? No. I haven't given him, but I've given direct cold case the information that I've collated, the names and the contact details of the people I've spoken to and um, names that have been dropped, people that I've had, you know, through this social media, I created the Instagram page where I do occasional posts just to keep, you know, keep those hashtags flowing, did the podcast and have been sharing things on Facebook and thankfully a few media outlets, particularly the Ballarat Papers, have been able to provide a bit of traction too. And as a result of that, not only the journalists but me, people are reaching out, giving their theories, going, oh, is it this person? Is it this person? And Mm. saying, I heard this, this and this. This person came into the shop this day and I'm going, all right, keep talking. I'll write it all down and I'll hand it over. And when I spoke to Cold Case, they said that will happen and you'll find that particularly in the small towns, people will be a little apprehensive to speak to the police, they might be comfortable talking to you and you might need to egg them on to actually come forth because, you know, they can't do anything about it when it's just hearsay. They need to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So there has been a couple of people I've spoken to and said, okay, that's great. I can't do anything with that. That's now third hand. But if you can do a Crime Stoppers report, that'd be great. Okay. Well, we will definitely share all of your social media tags and everything on the show notes and on our social media and on our website. Mm. 
and we will urge our listeners to get in touch with you and to leave any questions or information or anything on our speak pipe, which is how people can record messages and things, mm-hmm. and then we can play yeah. them to you and get you back on the show. Brilliant. And get them to listen to your three-part podcast. And just urge all of our listeners to spend some time with Nina Nicholson, your baby cousin, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and hashtag justice for Nina, and see if we can't help you in bringing about, at the very least, another inquest. Certainly. Because it seems very odd to me Mm. that there hasn't been a conviction in this case out of that tiny community. Yeah, it seems too damn obvious. And yeah, we definitely, on behalf of myself and the family, definitely appreciate you guys taking this case on board and using your incredible platform to promote it more because that's, you know, we've got to give these people voices. And, you know, through my diving into all this, you know, she's not the only one. She's the only one I can really focus on. But there is countless families out there affected in this exact same scenario and even out in that greater Ballarat area. And, you know, the cogs are turning now. Women are rising back to the top. More power to them and give people a voice and use your own voice where possible. Yeah, just because she was a quiet person and her beautiful parents are shy, humble people. It doesn't seem fair that she should be forgotten. So thank God they had one mouthy girl in the family. (laughs) 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 Who is you? It's been such a pleasure chatting to you too because I I just feel like... um, you know, I've sort of known about Nina's case, but there's just not, there wasn't that much out there. And I was like, mm-hmm. how the hell a woman gets bashed to death mm. on her doorstep in a tiny community? It's just, I don't know, it enrages me, but also, yeah, that's <laughs> the... Inspires. It inspires yeah. me majorly yeah. to keep talking yeah. about it, keep door knocking, letterbox drop. You've done so much work. I wish we could talk about the stuff that you've unearthed. I know. Same. I know. It'll come. come. The day will come when it will all see the light of day. And I always find it really moving when somebody fights tirelessly for somebody who they never met, someone who'll who'll never know when they can't fight for themselves and speak for themselves. Congratulations to you, Alice. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. I can't wait for that day to come. We look forward to it. 
Oh, hi, this is Joe. I have two questions for Graham Stafford. You can hear Graham Stafford answer those questions just after the break. And you can leave a message just like that with a question or a comment and become part of the show by following the link in the show notes to this episode. It's also on our website and pinned to the top of our Facebook page, but you have to be a patron to do that like these good people. Thank you, Andrea Johansson, Fiona Kent, Linda Darby, Rochelle Hardy, Jesse Tolson and Kate B. Hello. Hello. Hey, Graham. it's Michelle and Emily. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, good. We probably got dodgy reception up here on the mountain. No, it sounds okay. All right. I'll, I'm just trying to keep out of the way. The garbage trucks uh, just pulled up. I'm trying to keep out of the way of the noise. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the way. Yeah. I know you were chatting back to some people on Facebook and on our social media. How did you feel about the feedback from the podcast episode? Yeah, no, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, obviously, there was uh, a few. Um, Negative sort of, but I think you'll find that uh, that was a, a fair bit to do with my um, troll. Well, I say my troll. I shared the troll with um, a few other groups. Um, I think you'll find it was uh, the one that I've been trolling the Kelly Lane case as well. Really? Yeah, but, there's, there uh, yeah, seems yeah. to be a real um, – it really opened my eyes to this – element of those true crime groups where, yeah, there's these trolls on there. It was really hectic. And then we had people who were letting us know. They're like, that person's a troll. That person's a troll. Block them. I was like, wow, this is all baffling. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know who they are to be sure sort of thing, but uh, it just seems to be uh, an ongoing thing. I mean, even on Twitter, I mean, uh, I've had a few, quite a few uh, messages sort of thing and I just don't respond to them, you know. I mean, if they're on, if they actually tweet me, I'll respond. But if they're just a message, then mm. I just ignore them. There's no point. Yeah, and there was yeah. the the typical frustrating situation where people were talking about the report that said that you were most likely the killer of Leanne Holland when that's actually not the case. They were talking about the episode of Sunday Night on Channel 7 that claimed to have a a summary of the report because the report's never been published. And anyone who'd heard the episode of the podcast would know that because we talked about that extensively. Yes. That's frustrating, isn't it? It is. It is frustrating, especially uh, given, you know, I mean, they said it was going to be public and transparent to start with. You know, that's two commissioners ago, and now it's like they're paying. What do they have to pay out? Sixty odd thousand dollars to prevent it from being released. Yeah, you know, or trying to, you know, prevent it from being released. Uh, and it was thrown out. And there's so many people walking around saying, "Yeah, there's that report that came out that said that he did it." Well, like I said, you know, it, they want to produce the report so that everyone can see, and that's what I've been trying to do, trying to get hold of it so that. Uh, we can see what they're saying, what their claims are. I mean, how, how can you defend yourself if you can't see the claims? A listener of ours called Joe has left a message on this thing we've got called SpeakPipe, which is really cool, where our listeners can ring up and leave messages for us. And she's left two questions for you. So we'll play you her message and, uh, okay. and see what your answers are, okay? No worries. Oh, hi, this is Joe. I have two questions for Graham Stafford. The first question is, what would he like to say to the man who did kill Leanne Holland? So I thought that was a really good question, actually. Mm. I wish I'd asked you that. 
Yeah. It's, it is. You know, um, I sort of, it threw me, I guess, because I hadn't really thought about it. But I guess, um, I, I think, realistically, I probably wouldn't want to say anything. I, I, I just wouldn't want that person, you know, I mean, obviously that person's sort of moved on and, and has no real sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, just has no care, didn't care at all about what he's done and the effects that it's had on me and my family and, and to other, you know, obviously to the Hollands as well. So I probably wouldn't want to say anything. and. Let's not forget that realistically, there's every chance I've actually quite possibly met that person already. Hmm. But yeah, I have no intention of, uh, you know, letting them uh, live in my space, so I wouldn't want to say anything to them. Hmm. Okay, question number two from Joe. And the second question is. When Graham does get the full police review report, what does he intend to do with that information? So if the full report basically concludes that Graham Stafford did kill Leanne Holland, you know, what will Graham do with that information? Um, and if the full report doesn't conclude that, what are the next steps? I've always said that the um, the report was uh, produced and supposedly going to be for public consumption, really to instill confidence back in the uh, the public, you know. And it was always meant to be transparent. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's the way it should be, regardless of what their claims are. Those claims, if they are indeed supposedly still pointing the finger at me, then why aren't we um, in a position to have these? Claims tested in a uh, in the proper form, like a court. Mm. You know that's the right thing to do. Not have them, uh, you know, splashed about in the media and half sort of truths and, and whatnot. Whatever they uh, want to claim, these claims should be tested in a um, proper form. So, what would you do if you get the report this afternoon and it gives you the all clear? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's where I. Um, put my uh, trust in uh, in my uh, legal advisors and um, go from there. And, and I guess, realistically, either way, it would be based on what advice I get from my uh, legal advisors. I dare say that either way there would be uh, further action one way or the other. Yeah. Are you any further forward getting access to that report, Graham? Has there any been any more movement? Other than uh, there's, there's nothing really happened since... Um, QPS basically had their appeal thrown out. I had to laugh because certain uh, certain elements of the media actually uh, put articles out saying that uh, QPS had dropped their appeal. It wasn't the case. It was actually thrown out. <laughs> um, they never, never got a look in. So uh, other than um, after that, uh, we're still waiting. I mean, it's gone back to the Information Commissioner for reconsideration. That's basically... Uh, just a matter of whether they uh, consider getting the black marker out and redacting names and addresses, as far as I'm aware. That's that's all they really can claim is legal privilege now, is um, names and addresses. That's a privacy concern. So, realistically, I should be getting the report going by the court ruling. So hard to believe that this could just be dragged on and on and on and your reputation left dangling yep. yeah. after your conviction was quashed. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Thanks, Graham, Graham Stafford, for talking to us again. No worries. I promised our patrons a special exclusive episode about Graham Stafford's experience of being ambushed with a polygraph test on television. But as I started working on it, it very quickly got away from me. Firstly, I have to make a correction. In the original episode, I said it happened on Channel 7's Sunday night program. I was wrong about that. It happened on Channel 7's Murder Uncovered. So once I got that right, I went about researching and the deeper I went into the story the more confused I became, frankly, about the decisions that were made by the production when it came to what information to share with their audience and what to hold back. Not only about Graham Stafford, but also about their star witness Steve and the reasons why he's been linked to Leanne Holland's murder. And there are lots of reasons for that. I also don't understand why they didn't discuss how they got their hands on the Queensland Police Service's forensic review that's at the heart of the report and is supposedly a classified document. The fact that they had a copy at all surely points to police corruption. But having worked on news shows myself, I understand that sometimes there are legal and ethical reasons for certain pieces of information needing to be held back. In the first days and weeks after William Tyrrell's disappearance, for example, when the community was confused and even angered by the fact that his parents hadn't appeared on television to appeal for his safe return, as parents usually do in these situations, everyone who worked in newsrooms around the country knew the reason. It was because he was in the foster system and that created legal and privacy issues. There are laws in Australia to protect children in lots of circumstances. For example, children who have been victimised by adults. And sometimes those laws prevent us from reporting on the adults. It can be frustrating, but ultimately the intention is to give back to victims some measure of privacy and dignity. I have to assume that these reasons were at play for the producers of Murder Uncovered. But with that said, I have contacted the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk the Queensland Minister for Police, Mark Ryan, and the Queensland Police Commissioner, Katerina Carroll, and called upon them to step in and demand the release of the Queensland Police Service forensic review into the Leanne Holland murder investigation. The Queensland Police Service has spent hundreds of thousands of taxpayers' dollars fighting to keep it secret, only for it to be leaked to a TV show, to be cherry-picked for entertainment value. And all the while, the brutal torture and murder of a 12-year-old child goes uninvestigated and unsolved. Why? I'm still awaiting reply for interview requests from the Premier, the Police Minister and the Commissioner of Police. But somebody in Queensland needs to do something. Next week on Australian True Crime, we'll introduce you to a former Queensland police officer who's investigating Leanne's case.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.